It is uh, school holidays, and kids, you're a very much an important part of us. And um, so this morning, uh, it's become the tradition at least one uh, uh, Sunday during the school holidays during the sermon to do sermon bingo. So I'm going to ask uh, Chris and Bethany, my lovely assistants, to come out and uh, pass out these um, for the little kids and also, yes, the big kids. So if you want to do sermon bingo, grab it. Kids, there's a prize. Big kids. Mm. <laughs> okay. So the, the, the rules of this, if you're visiting, are simply that as I preach my sermon, I will say various things. And, and they are written, the things that are written down there, cross them off as we come to them, okay? Cross them off. And when, you, when they're all crossed off, what happens? What do they do? They cry bingo. And just so that you know that we're not setting you up to be embarrassed and everybody's going to go, <laughs> he said bingo, let's practice. One, two, three. Bingo! Great. And I and my wife, Chris, who is uh, the, the greatest judge of, uh, of these things, will be able to work out who, who yelled out bingo first. And it helps if you stand up, okay, particularly if you're a kid, so that we can see you. And, and, and it's okay, it's great, because, uh, yeah. And, uh, and then, uh, there's, there's a couple of prizes here, and on the way out, if you show me that you've done bingo, um, then there's, there's an Easter egg for you as well, okay? Okay. Chocolate, it's worth listening to my sermon. <laughs> now, let's pray. Loving God, thank you very much just for the joy of Easter. For the wonderful truth that Jesus Christ, who died, also rose to life again. Amen. How are we going? I'll wait for a second. Cool. Goodbye. <laughs> okay, everybody got one? Thanks, Beth. Thanks, Chris. Okay. I don't want to give anybody an unfair uh, a disadvantage in this. Okay. Excellent. I can't help but think that Mary's reactions uh, to that first Easter Sunday summarise for us the wonder of the resurrection. It starts, uh, the day starts in darkness. Okay, you got that? Starts in darkness. With tears and grief. Dead hopes because of a dead teacher. And then confusion. The tomb is empty. Where have they taken the body? What have they done? Just one more thing that they've done to Jesus. But it finishes with the joy of her wonderful affirmation. I have seen the Lord. The resurrection changes everything. Jesus was raised to life again. And that's the central tenet and the pivotal event of the Christian faith, Jesus' resurrection. Now, when a non-Christian professor of philosophy was asked if he could ask any historical figure, uh, speak to any historical figure and ask them one question, he answered, I'd want to speak to Jesus Christ. 
And I'd ask him the world's most important question. Did he or did he not rise from the dead? And over this Easter season, that's from Easter Sunday right through to Pentecost at the end of May, we're going to explore the resurrection. And we're going to do it through the eyewitness accounts that we have in the Gospels of people like Mary Magdalene who have seen the Lord. And it's my hope in doing this that our confidence of the historical, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ may be strengthened and we may gain more insight in what it means for us today. Now, we're used to wanting scientific evidence to believe something, aren't we? And when it comes to the resurrection, we can't simply run an experiment to see if we get the same results. Firstly, because the resurrection is a unique event in history, and it points us to the uniqueness of Jesus himself. It validates his claims to be the unique son of God. So it can't be replicated. And I don't think there are many ethics uh, committees at universities either that would agree to uh, a sample being killed to see if they'd rise, be raised to life again. We do need to use a different form of exploration. Like with legal cases or any other historical event, we need to see the evidence, hear from witnesses, and then weigh their testimony and see the impact that it has. Now, Val Grieve, in his book, Your Verdict on the Empty Tomb of Jesus, quotes a famous lawyer who said, When I have a weak case, I make long speeches in court. When I have a strong case, I simply call the witnesses. Well, I can't vouch for short sermons, but we are going to call the witnesses. And in our reading in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, Paul sets out a list of witnesses that we could call on. And it's an interesting list of individuals and groups. Jesus' brother, James. That is the James mentioned in this list. And you know, he could be considered a hostile witness, as we know from the Gospels, that with the family he came to get Jesus at one stage because he thought he'd gone mad with all this Messiah stuff. But after the resurrection, we see James, the brother of Jesus, become a key leader of the church in Jerusalem. Now, we have no record of the appearance to the 500, and Paul also places himself on the list, but affirms that he's an anomaly. We, you know, we have accounts and acts of a meeting with the risen Jesus Christ, which, as he puts it, was like one untimely born. And when we have a look at the list of the witnesses, we see that most of them actually suffered and died for witnessing to the fact that Jesus was Lord because he had been raised to life again. If it was a made-up story, then all they needed to do was admit it, to recant, and they'd save their lives. But they couldn't do that. And no one dies for a lie. Now, we have gospel accounts of many of the encounters with the risen Jesus. But it's also important to note that we are going to look at witnesses that Paul does not mention. Now, if this was an American courtroom drama, can you imagine me as a, an American courtroom drama? No. <laughs> uh, you know, you might have at this stage, you'd, you'd have an objection to the judge. Objection, Your Honour. These people were not on the list that we were given of witnesses. And mainly, that is the women. And in particular, Mary Magdalene. 
Now, Paul is very much a man of his culture and time. And as a first century Jewish man, as he presented his list of witnesses as if this is a legal case, he would not have included the women, as women in that time and culture could not appear as witnesses in legal cases. But the fact that the women were the first to meet Jesus risen from the dead and the first to proclaim it is significant. Because, you see, if the resurrection were a made-up story, you can guarantee that it would have appeared first to a man. Uh, as Val Greaves suggests, probably to a significant figure, like Peter. Or maybe even his enemy, like Caiaphas, the high priest. But instead, Jesus chooses to appear to the women and to Mary Magdalene. So let's look at her encounter, as we were told it in John's Gospel. Mary Magdalene, of course, is mentioned in all four Gospels as a woman who followed Jesus from Galilee. She is a wealthy woman, and as she's uh, said to be one of the women who supported Jesus and his followers. And she's mentioned 12 times in the Gospels. That's more than most of the apostles and more than any other woman except Jesus' mother. And Magdalene is a name differentiating her from the other Marys. There's lots of Marys in the Gospel. Um, by the fact that she comes from the town of Magdala. If you want the uh, sort of the, you know, proper name for what that is, it's a toponomic surname. She's a surname from where she comes from. And in Mark and Luke, it tells us that she had a significant encounter with Jesus where he cast out seven demons from her. She was committed to him because he had restored her to wholeness and wellness. And all four Gospels say that she was a witness to the crucifixion, that she followed them as they took Jesus' body to be buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. She knew where he was buried. So after the Sabbath, she went to that tomb. In some of the other Gospels, we're told that some other women went with her and they were going to finish preparing Jesus' body for burial. But John's focus is on Mary alone and her encounter with Jesus. And John tells us when she got there, the stone had been removed from the entrance and she runs to get Peter and the disciple Jesus loved, which is often considered to be John. And they look in the tomb and they saw the grave clothes there. And it tells us they believed but simply went back to where they were staying. Now, at this stage, they may have simply believed that the body was not there. The significance of it hadn't dawned on them. But Mary stays. She's alone and still full of grief and confusion and tears. And now she looks into the tomb. And there are these two figures identified as angels in the tomb who ask her, why is she crying? But they don't get a chance to tell her the good news as they are interrupted by a figure behind her who asks her the same question. Woman, why are you crying? And all the way through, Mary had repeat, repeated the refrain, they've taken his body, they've taken his body. Where have they put it? What have they done with Jesus? She has no expectation whatsoever that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Even with this figure behind her, she does not expect to see Jesus. She just thinks it's the gardener. And her only hope is, if he's the gardener and he's been around, he will know what's been going on in the garden. It's only when Jesus says her name. And it's in the Aramaic, not the Greek, 
as it had been written up to this moment, that Mary recognises who it is speaking to her. Mary. It's Jesus. And she replies, Rabbani. Again, which is an Aramaic word, which John feels he has to translate for his Greek readers. It means teacher. But it's a real sign that this is an eyewitness account, a word which she probably used of Jesus during his life, but like her name, one spoken out of a deep personal relationship, a word seared into her memory of this event, one of amazement and great joy that here was Jesus. Now, some people have speculated that this was a grief-induced hallucination, But it's important to realise that up to this point, Mary has no expectation of anything other than that someone has moved the body. They've stolen it. And in classic grief-induced hallucinations, people will see, think that they see the person that they're grieving for. There'll be an element of someone's face or just a stance. And they will think that it's the person that they are are grieving. And then they'll realise that they were mistaken. You've probably walked up to someone and gone, hi, and suddenly realised it's not the person you thought it was, right? Or am I the only one that's done that? No. Right. Yeah. (laughs) But this, and I've got to get back to my script so they don't miss any uh, words. Yeah, but this is the totally the opposite. She thinks it's someone else, but in actual fact, it's Jesus. These elements, like the use of her name and her response to Jesus, give us a picture of an eyewitness account. Evidence that Jesus has been raised to life again. She does not. She does what anyone would do. She grasps Jesus. Maybe even as one of the other Gospels talks of the women, she fell at his feet in worship. Because you see, Rabbani, as well as meaning teacher, can also be used in prayer as an address to God. And Jesus then tells her not to hold on to him, but to go and tell his brothers that he's ascending to my father and your father, my God and your God. And she goes and tells the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Okay, well, what does this mean and what does it mean for us? And it's best to look at that through Jesus' words. Firstly, Mary. There is a sense that this is the same Jesus who had walked and lived and laughed and taught and healed and got to know and care for and love people. He genuinely cares for Mary Magdalene and wants to console her in her grief. Yep, this is Jesus, the very human Jesus, concerned for the poor and for the hurting. And in that personal care, we see that Mary has the privilege of being the first to know and to proclaim Jesus has risen to life again. And you can see the same thing in Jesus appearing to James, his brother, concerned for him and wanting to show him and his family who he really is. We see it in his reconciling Peter to himself, Peter who had denied Jesus three times by asking, Peter, do you love me? Three times. His willingness to address Thomas's doubts. I'll only believe if I see him and place my hands in his wounds and in his side. The risen Jesus shows the same care, concern and compassion 
is the pre-crucified Jesus. However, there's something different as well. Jesus tells Mary, do not hold on to me. Or more precisely, don't grip me. Maybe Mary had been working out. (laughs) Now, some people think this is like, you know, with a renovation or a piece of handiwork that you go along to see and... um, Did I say do not hold on to me? I did? Yep, good. (laughs) Just thought I'd throw that out there. You know, and you reach out to touch it and somebody says, don't touch it, the paint's not dry. But somehow Jesus is sort of still metamorphosing, if there's such a word. Um, But by associating that do not hold on to me as with I am ascending to the Father, Jesus is saying that while he has a body, And it's the same, that somehow he is different. And how we relate to him is going to change as well. It's not going to be the same as earthly, walking, touching, sharing meals, holding on to Jesus, although he does all those things. Jesus is now going to ascend and be with the Father. Resurrection is not the same as reanimation. Jesus isn't a glorified zombie. Or resuscitation. It wasn't as if one of the theories that was used to try and disprove the resurrection goes that Jesus simply swooned on the cross and then was able to, be, to resuscitate himself, roll the stone away and show himself to his disciples as the victorious risen son of God. One thing against that, of course, is the Romans knew their stuff. They knew when someone was dead. Crucifixion was a, daily, if not, a weekly, if not a daily, event. So they knew when someone was dead. And they broke the legs of the thieves on on either side of Jesus to make sure they died. Also in John's Gospel, the image of blood and water flowing from Jesus' side is a sure medical sign that Jesus was dead. Rather here, Jesus was resurrected. He, uh, He was now in a body that was fit and right for eternity with God in heaven. A body not limited by time and place, by death and decay. And the reading we had from 1 Corinthians 15 was the opening paragraph of what N.T. Wright calls Paul's longest argument about anything, anywhere, where he explains to the Corinthians who thought that they had resurrection bodies about the difference between our bodies now and what the resurrection body would be. One is open to death and decay. The other is imperishable and fit for eternity. And here Jesus talks of the start of a different way that we will relate to him as he ascends to the Father. John had started his gospel with connecting Jesus with the word which was with God and was God in creation. And now in the garden, on the first day, words which echo creation, we get a glimpse of this new creation. And the word of God returning to God. That brings us to the rest of what Jesus says. As Jesus starts to articulate a new way of being, he also articulates how his crucifixion and resurrection has affected how his disciples relate to him and relate to God. He tells Mary to go and tell my brothers and tell them I have ascended to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Now, this is the first time that Jesus has called his disciples brothers. Some people think 
that he meant for Mary to go and tell James and his other brothers. However, she understood him as speaking of his disciples. That's who she went to see. He had, up to now, called them disciples, apostles, servants, and even at the Last Supper, friends. But now we hear the word brother, and hopefully sisters as well. He speaks of ascending to the Father, but the emphasis is on my Father, Jesus' unique relationship with God, but also your Father, my God and your God. There is a sense here of family. That because of Jesus' death and his resurrection, the disciples and we who also believe in Jesus are in a changed relationship with God. Way back at the prelude to John's gospel, the gospel writer had said that all who receive him, all who believe in him, uh, would be given the right to be called sons and daughters of the God Most High. And now after the crucifixion and the resurrection, we see that echoed and reinforced in Jesus' first words to his disciples, my brothers. It is because of the crucifixion and the resurrection that we are brought into that new and right eternal relationship with God. As Paul speaks about it in his epistles, we are adopted into God's family. We are co-heirs with Christ. The things that separate us from God have been defeated on the cross. And in Jesus' resurrection, this new creation, there's a possible restoration of a relationship between God and humanity, where God is our Father. One that we can all know, that we can all experience, because the risen Jesus has ascended to the Father, is alive, and still meets with us today, and calls us to himself by name. Bingo, yes, it's great. Ro, I think, I think we've got to say that you and, um, yeah, the two, the two kids and everybody, okay. Do you want to come up and grab your, we'll give you this. Well done. And the rest of you, if you show me your form, I'll give you an Easter egg as well. Yeah. Whoa. Don't eat them all now or your mum, your mum and dad are going to be very upset with me. Bingo. You see, the resurrection changes everything. We have these eyewitness accounts of people who have seen the Lord that can give us confidence that Jesus is not just a dead good teacher, sadly killed by an occupying force in a move of political expedience. Rather, he is alive and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is who he said he was, the Son of God. And we can share in his new creation life today. And you know, that's why the question, did Jesus rise or not rise from the dead, is the most important one in the world. It's one we have to answer and think about. Let's pray.